For years, I have been hoping to have a conversation with former President Jimmy Carter on Interfaith Voices. Now, his new book, on one of my favorite topics, offers the perfect entree. It focuses on the rights of women around the world and the influence that religious traditions have had in either subjugating women or promoting gender equality. Jimmy Carter was the 39th President of the United States and is an international humanitarian and an author. But he is also a global interfaith leader and probably the most popular Sunday school teacher in the country. President Carter, it's an honor to have you as a guest on Interfaith Voices. Welcome. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you. And for all your listeners. Thank you. Now, since you left the presidency in 1981, you founded the Carter Center, and you and your wife, Rosalind, have visited 145 countries. You have active projects in more than half of them. And with this global perspective, you say in the book that, and I'm quoting here, the most serious and unaddressed worldwide challenge is the deprivation and abuse of women and girls. Why give that issue number one status in the world? Well, it's the most serious and all-pervasive crime in the world because the abuse is quite often physical and mental, and it almost it quite often results in death. As a matter of fact, there were about 40 million people who died in the Second World War, the worst war we've ever had, and about four times that many little girls have been killed, murdered, or strangled by their own parents, or either aborted when the parents find out that the fetus is going to be a female. And that occurs in China and in, uh, in India and South Korea and other places around the world. So that's the most horrible murder that's going on now in the world, and it's, and it's going on pretty much unaddressed. And we also have, as a result of that, a shortage of girls or women to, be, to serve as brides. So quite often, like in South Korea, they have to buy brides from overseas from a kind of an inexpensive country, to provide uh, women to marry the men. <clears throat> and this results, too, in, in the worst, uh, I'd say, human trafficking or slavery trade that we've had, even including the 19th century. And uh, the United States is not immune to that. We have a great deal of slavery going on in our country, primarily girls sold into sexual bondage. And I know many people that are deeply concerned about that human trafficking here. Yes, almost every country, every, every city I've been in the United States on this tour so they have a problem with it. Yes, I'm not surprised at that, unfortunately. Now, you attribute much of this gender discrimination to the false interpretation of religious texts used to justify gender discrimination. Can you give us some examples from your own Christian tradition? What texts are used to justify the second-class status of women? Well, I teach Sunday school every Sunday when I'm home about 35 times a year in my little church <clears throat> in Plains, Georgia, and, and I teach both the Old Testament and New Testament about equally. And I see quite often that uh, the, the text in the Bible are misinterpreted by men who want to claim that they're superior to women, even in the eyes of God. When I have a problem with that, which I do quite often when I read certain passages in the Bible, I go back and refer directed to the teachings and words and actions of Jesus Christ, who was probably the chief uh, protector of women's rights that ever lived. And he was very attentive to giving women special consideration in all of his ministry. But some of the Old Testament verses 
And a few of the New Testament verses have been taken out of context to show that women shouldn't be um, active in the church, that women shouldn't even teach boys in a classroom, that women shouldn't adorn themselves in any way. So you can select a few verses like that that really, I think, misinterpret the overall thrust of the Bible and, and certainly the Christian teaching. And I'm sure you must have come in contact with biblical conservatives, particularly in your Baptist tradition, who would cite these texts, and I'm thinking here of St. Paul, you know, women should be silent in church or they should keep their heads covered and so forth. And they use those to keep women from being pastors or priests or preachers. How do you answer them when you're face-to-face with them? Well, I I came face-to-face with that. I was a, a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, my wife and I were, until the year 2000. I was quite active in the convention itself, as a matter of fact. And the, the convention met in 2000 in Orlando, Florida, and they decided to ordain that women could not be priests, could not be deacons in the church, could not be chaplains. And they also uh, ordained that a woman in a seminary at a higher level of uh, Christian education couldn't even teach a classroom if a boy was in a class. So Rosa and I decided to withdraw from the Southern Baptist Convention and now we belong to a small, moderate Baptist church in Plains uh, where we have women deacons and we've had women pastors. My wife is a deacon, as a matter of fact, and I think right now more than half of the deacons in our church are women. And I think you belong now to the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which is yes. somewhat of a counterpart to the Southern Baptist Convention. That's exactly that? right. The, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a group of uh, churches who split away from the Southern Baptist Convention because of that reason and maybe a few others. And, of course, as you said, you still teach Sunday school in Georgia when you're home, and I understand that your classes are really crowded. (laughs) Well, we have about 35 members in our church that come regularly, and uh, we've had as many as 850 visitors who come. Oh, my heavens. About 150 to 200. Uh, I guess they want to, you know, see a politician teach the Bible or something, kind of a curiosity. (laughs) (laughs) Why is it so important to you, though, to continue to teach Sunday school? Well, it's part of, it's it's my basic faith, and and it's a foundation for my, you know, political activities and and the work that Rosa and I do around the world with 80 projects in different countries and so forth. So it's it's just a stimulation for me, and and it makes, it it adds... um, Visitors to our little town, which is which is always nice. We have a small a hotel there, and it fills up when I teach. And, uh, you know, the restaurants uh, also have good business. So it not only brings benefit to the town, but it holds our church together. And, and it's, it's stimulating for me. I, I like to study the lessons. I go back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament about 50% every year. And, uh, and it, it's stimulating, and I, I combine them with the experiences that I've had and also mix them in with some of the most recent news reports uh, that people are aware of when they come to church. So your Sunday school has both an economic benefit for Plains, Georgia, (laughs) and a spiritual benefit for those people who come to hear you. Oh, I hope so, yes. (laughs) Now, on to the issue of women clergy. Of course, most mainline Protestant denominations have women clergy. That's true. But not the Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church. And full disclosure here, I'm a Catholic myself, and I was fascinated that you wrote a letter to Pope Francis. You talked about this in the book, which he actually answered. And perhaps you can talk about what your message was and how he responded. Well, when I was president of the United States, I had Pope John Paul II come and visit me in the White House. 
and we've had a very long and, uh, and very enjoyable conversation. I brought up the subjects of women's rights and also things, things like contraceptive, but I found him to be quite conservative on the issue, and I didn't pursue it to an uncomfortable level. But I, I've, I haven't met uh, Pope Francis yet, but I've read some of the comments that he's made. Well, I wrote him a letter and described some of the issues that I raised in my book and, and asked him to join with me in helping to alleviate the persecution and abuse of women and girls. And I didn't ask him to uh, admit women to be priests in the church. I thought that was too much for me to ask. So he sent me a very nice letter back and said, that his in, in his opinion, that the role of women in the Catholic Church should be greatly enhanced in the future, or worse to that effect. And I noticed last week he appointed an eight-person committee to deal with the problem of priests abusing children, and four of those eight people were women. One of them was a woman who had been abused as a child when she was in a convent by a priest. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't uh, claim that that was because I wrote him, but I think he has a natural tendency to try to want to bring women into the church in as equal a way as he can, you know, within the boundary of the cardinals and so forth. Let me ask you this. If it were possible, would you be willing to sit down and talk to Pope Francis face-to-face and dialogue with him on the subject of gender equality, including perhaps a discussion of women becoming priests in the church? Certainly I would. I've met with the last three popes before him, and I I would like very much to meet with him someday. You know, I'm not trying to insinuate that I would have any more influence than anybody else, certainly not more than a Catholic would. But uh, I, I think that uh, I, I'm sending him a copy of my book, and maybe he'll read it over, and, and, uh, and we can stay in touch. That's great. Um, and may I say, I, I'm sure you know this, Pope Francis is, to most observers, a very different kind of pope, and he's a fascinating personality on the religious scene. Can you say something about your view of him generally? I have been thrilled at what he has done since he's been in that office. And I also knew about Pope Francis when he was still an archbishop in Argentina. This was a country, as you know, that was very uh, horribly ridden by human rights abuses by the military dictatorship when thousands of people were killed in the middle of the night. And the future Pope, Pope Francis was very attentive to their needs and was quite courageous in pursuing human rights even before he held a high office. Of course, you write in your book about many faith traditions in relation to women's rights, and that includes Judaism. Now, as we both know, here in this country, of course, reform and conservative traditions have women rabbis. They often champion issues of gender equality. But you focus on a growing and influential group in Israel, the ultra-Orthodox. What's the problem there for women, and how might that be solved? Well, that really was derived by me from a group of women leaders who came to our Carter Center Conference, and they described what was going on in Israel now. When Israel was founded as a nation, they were about 1% of the hiredom, but they are growing quite rapidly in, in number because they have such a high birth rate. And they were excused from the very beginning by the founders of, uh, of Israel as a country from serving in the military, and they're not even expected to work uh, and earn a living because they are assumed to be uh, devoted to studying the scriptures full time. So this is what they have done. They have, in the past, they lived in just a few small communities, but now 
as they spread out in their size and in, in their all-pervasive presence in Israel, they become quite uh, demanding that women, for instance, who are not even a member of that particular sect, wear the strictest possible clothes, and they won't let women ride in, in certain buses, and they won't let women uh, worship at the Wailing Wall. And when uh, a or ultra-orthodox happens to be in the military, they don't permit a woman's voice to be heard near them, singing a song or anything of that kind. So, so there is, in Israel, a debate about their status. And as you may have read, uh, the Knesset, the parliament has recently begun to consider passing laws that would let the ultra-Orthodox be treated pretty much the same as other people in Israel, with some exceptions. Yes, and it's caused huge demonstrations there as well. It has, that's right. It's quite a controversial issue. And then, of course, there is Islam. And, of course, many Americans, as you well know, have memories of the Taliban and Afghanistan and their treatment of women, or they know that women are not even allowed to drive in countries like Saudi Arabia. And they think Islam itself does not support gender equality. But you write that the imams and mullahs that you've met say the Quran does, in fact, support the rights of women. Uh, How so? Well, if you look at all the verses in the Holy Bible and all the verses in the Koran, uh, you'll find very few verses in the Koran that uh, derogates women and puts them in a secondary position in the eyes of God. And uh, I studied the Koran quite thoroughly when uh, my hostages were being held in Iran. I had scholars come in and explain it to me. And I've worked very closely with with the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, who is a president of a university in Cairo that has 120,000 students. And he is a spiritual leader of the Sunni Muslims, which um, include about three-fourths of the Muslims on earth. And he works very closely with me and the Carter Center in drafting our statements that uh, equate women as much as possible with men. And so if these religious texts in the Quran are easily interpreted to support gender equality, why the resistance? Is it pretty much the same as it is in other faith traditions? Well, you know, people can, you can find a certain verse or certain verses in the Bible that that lets you interpret it the way you want to, particularly if you're a, a male leader in the religious organization, whether it's Buddhist or Hindu or or Jewish, or Catholic, or Protestant, or Islam. And so uh, I think that's what happens. And quite often in the remote areas of Africa, where Rosa and I work quite a lot, there's a terrible uh, incident of uh, female mutilation where the genitalia of little girls are, are removed. And so this is not ordained at all by the uh, Koran. It's not even demanded by husbands. This is a practice that's carried out almost exclusively by mothers who had their genitals cut when they were little girls, and now they feel it is proper to let their little girls have the same treatment. So that's what we are trying to deal with as well. And this is something that uh, the United Nations General Assembly has now passed two resolutions condemning this practice. But for instance, in Egypt, where I go quite often, 90% of the women and girls in Egypt have had their female genitalia uh, mutilated. And it's even greater than that in some of the other countries. And, of course, that's just one instance of the abuse of women worldwide. I certainly know people who have dealt with the problem of honor killing in other countries. 
Um, but can you describe some of those crimes that some of the misinterpretation of these religious texts are used to support, other than just genital cutting or honor killing? I think that one of the things that we need to look on, particularly as Americans, is how guilty we are in this country of the abuse of women and girls. And Atlanta, Georgia, where the Carter Center happens to be located, is the worst place in the United States. We have about between two and 300 girls sold into sexual slavery in Atlanta every month. And the State Department last year reported that uh, 100,000 girls in America are sold into slavery every year. And that on, a, on an international basis, which again the State Department is required to report, 800,000 last year were sold across international borders, and 80% of those were girls sold into sexual slavery. So I, I've met with these girls <clears throat> around the world as I was preparing for my book and working on the Carter Center, and I know how they have been, uh, you might say, extracted from their family because these shrewd people will go to the family and say, look, you have a little girl here. I know you have too many children to feed. Why don't you let, you, let us take your daughter, and we'll teach her how to be a beautician or a nurse or, or a teacher, and then we'll make sure she sends a third or fourth of her salary back to you at home, and then they take her away from home with the parents' permission. And then at that night, they rape her, they give her drugs, they take her across an international border, say from Nepal to, to India is the last place I was, and, and that's the way the girl becomes a prostitute. And that's why I think the, the work to stop this sex trafficking movement and this sexual slavery movement is so important. It is, and we don't, we don't do anything about it in this country. No matter where you are, I happen to be in Cincinnati right now. I was in Denver earlier. But everywhere that I go, when I talk to some of the law officials, they say it's the same problem. And, and the problem is that the police and the chief of police and the mayor and city council don't want to do anything to aggravate the Johns, the men customers of the girls. So what they do is just look the other way. And the policemen on the beat who certainly know that a house of prostitution or brothel is there, they either uh, get paid a bribe or either they get free sexual favors or their chief of police tells them don't bother anybody. And that's what happens, and it, that's why it grows. And I point out in the book that there's one way to address that very successfully that was done in Sweden. And in Sweden, they have uh, passed a law seven years ago that's really worked wonderfully. And what they do is they don't arrest the girls at all because a lot of them are taken into slavery against their wishes. They arrest the brothel owners and the pimps and the male customers. And all you have to do is arrest two or three prominent male customers in a city, and you pretty well put a quietus on rampant prostitution. So that kind of policy may provide some solution there if it were widely adopted. Well, other countries are adopting it now. Germany has already adopted it. Uh, France has passed it through one house of their parliament, and they're going to pass it through the other house, I believe, in, Jan in June. And this past November, Canada abolished every law that they've ever had on the book about prostitution. And now they're looking at a new way to address the problem. And I've uh, written an op-ed piece for the Toronto News papers to uh, urge them to, to adopt the Swedish model. But it actually works. Is there any movement toward that in the United States? No, not that I've ever heard of. And that would probably happen at the state level, wouldn't it? Well, it could happen at the national level, but I don't think it ever will. But it certainly could, should happen at the local level.
And, you know, I think part of it is kind of connected. When you have unreported and unpunished uh, rape on college campuses, when you have the same thing happen in the military, it's kind of a permissive attitude that develops. And that's what we have in this country. So in light of this horrific situation which you've described, maybe you could dream with me for a second. If religious leaders across faith traditions really sought to improve the global situation of women and girls, what could they do that would be most effective? Obviously, I would like to see all the religious leaders announce and and believe that women and men are treated the same in the eyes of God. Uh, That's what Christ said. That's what St. Paul said in his letter to the Galatians. There's no difference between men and women. There's no difference between slaves and masters. There's no difference between Jews and Gentiles in the eyes of God. Everybody's equal. That would be the main thing. But I think that the primary way to to correct these problems that I've just described to you about genital cutting and and sex slave and things of that kind, it really has to be done through international law. And the United Nations has passed some very fine laws that deal with the abuse of women and girls. One of them is called the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, C-E-D-A-W, is it called CEDAW. The other one is called the International Violence Against Women Act. But the United States Congress absolutely refuses to pass either of these laws in its fullest state. And so this is something that, uh, that our Congress is blocking, and we could do that, you know, next month if the Congress were just willing to do it. And how has the book been received, President Carter? Well, I was in... Uh, I was in Oregon yesterday and signed 1,600 books. Uh, I'm in uh, Cincinnati now. I understand they've already sold 1,400 books. So that's about all I could sign at one time. (laughs) Jimmy Carter was the 39th president of the United States. He is an international humanitarian and interfaith leader and the author of more than two dozen books, including his latest, A Call to Action, Women, Religion, Violence, and Power, Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today, President Carter. I've enjoyed it very much, Maureen. Thank you again.